right, good to see everybody tonight. Why don't you uh, open your Bibles to Romans 12? I'll just give you a little head start there, okay? When you find Romans 12, just kind of look up here. Uh, if you're new with us, we are currently studying 1 Peter on Wednesday nights here at Calvary. Uh, as we came to chapter 4, we got as far as verse 10, which reads, As each one has received a gift, and I thought about gifts of the Holy Spirit, Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And guys, as we came to 1 Peter 4, verse 10, we used it as a springboard to launch us into a study on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. As we have already said, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are vital to the overall health and function of the local church, which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, tells us we must not be ignorant as to what these gifts are and how they work. Now, when it comes to spiritual gifts, the most comprehensive list, as we have said several times, comes out of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 10. And uh, here Paul lists the gifts of the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, healings, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Then at the end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he adds the gift of helps and administrations. In Romans 12, he talks about the gifts of ministry and teaching. Now, those are the two gifts that Peter mentions in 1 Peter 4, verse 11. But then Paul concludes Romans 12, uh, the list there. He concludes it with the gifts of exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. Now, last time we finished the list in 1 Corinthians 12, and so tonight we want to move over to Romans 12 and look at the gifts Paul mentioned in that list before going back to 1 Corinthians 14 to finish looking at the final three gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul devotes almost an entire, the entire chapter to explaining the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and uh, the interpretation of tongues. So we'll end our study there looking at those gifts. But right now in Romans 12, starting with verse 6, we read, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. So the idea is that God gives us gifts to be used. Okay, we've made that point numerous times, right? Uh, these gifts are not given to make us feel real spiritual. Uh, not given to, you know, I don't know, act like a window dressing in our Christian lives. Look, at we have these gifts. They're to be used. So if, according to the gifts God has given, uh, use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, as I said, Paul starts this list in Romans 12 with the gift of prophecy. We will look at that when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. So let's skip over that gift and start tonight by looking at the gift of ministry. Uh, the word ministry is a very broad term, meaning to serve the Lord, service for the Lord. And it comes from the Greek word diakonia, which is the feminine form of diakonos, the word we get our word deacon from. Now, a deacon is an office in the church, like a pastor, uh, the office of pastor, 
uh, in the church. Paul talks about these two offices, pastor and deacon, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But whereas a pastor takes care of the spiritual matters of the local church, a deacon takes care of the physical nuts and bolts uh, matters. For example, the first deacons in the early church were chosen to take care of the, um, the daily food distribution to the widows. And that was like a food pantry uh, that they had established uh, to help the widows because there was no social programs in those days, no government programs. If a woman was a widow and she had no children or they were unwilling to help her, she was pretty much on her own. And so the church uh, recognized that these ladies needed some help. So they established this food pantry, we'll say, and every day uh, food was distributed to these widows. Well, it got to be too much for the apostles. So much so that some of the folks in the church thought the, the apostles were favoring the Jews from Israel and were kind of slighting the Jewish gals from outside the land of Israel, the Hellenist Jews. And the apostles said, look, honestly, we're not doing that. It's just too much for us. You guys pick out for yourself seven men full of the Holy Spirit, and we'll give it over to them. Just so you know, we're not playing favorites. You pick out seven guys you know, who became the first deacons, uh, Acts chapter 6, uh, and, and, and put them over this work. It's, and it says that we might give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, that's what they were called primarily to do. Look, as a pastor, I'll do whatever I have to do. But the idea is my main responsibility is to study the word, teach the word, to pray. And if I'm busy doing all kinds of other things, uh, it takes away from that. And the church suffers. That's why it's a wise church that lets there, and you guys have done this, so thank you. It's a wise church that, whenever possible, can support the pastor so he can go full time and just focus on what God has called him to do. I think the church winds up being uh, blessed because of it. Usually the office of deacon would be different from the gift of diakona, uh, even as the office of a prophet is really different from the gift of prophecy, which we'll study next time. However, I, in this case, I think that Paul primarily has in mind the men that God has called to the office of deacons by giving them the gift of deacon or ministry. Look, all Christians are called to serve. All Christians are called to serve. Uh, it was a sad day in the church when, you know, people started looking at the clergy uh, as the professional servants, you know, the minister, okay? When all of us are called to minister. Uh, we never want to communicate to people that, look, we have a paid staff and they are the ministers. You folks just come and, you know, let us bless you. Okay, uh, no, that's obviously not biblical. All Christians are called to serve and have been equipped by God with certain gifts of the Holy Spirit for whatever areas of service the Lord has called you to in the body of Christ. However, the gift of ministry is a special gift of the Holy Spirit, given to some who are more like, we'll say, official servants. Not necessarily paid, but official servants. Um, this would include deacons, as we have said, but also others in the church that seem to have a call to the ministry of service in more of a formal capacity. Again, we're all called to serve, but some, uh, they seem to have a calling to serve. Uh, when I say that, I'm thinking uh, in part of the women that um, uh, ministered to Jesus during and his apostles during his earthly ministry. These gals would follow them around and 
probably made sure they had food and different other things that they had needs of. They would uh, minister to Jesus and his disciples as they ministered to others. I'm also thinking later on of the women in the church who uh, ministered in the local church, uh, like uh, Tabitha. Remember Tabitha in the book of Acts? In fact, turn to Acts chapter 9. I think she stands out as one prime example of this. Acts 9, starting with verse 36. It says, At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. I prefer Tabitha. It's prettier. <laughs> this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Now, of course, God used Peter to raise her from the dead. But you see what I'm saying. Dorcas was not a paid staff of the church, but she had this gift of ministry. And uh, that was just her passion. One author put it this way. He said, the person who has the gift of ministry has a servant heart. He or she sees opportunities, and they're always looking for opportunities to be of service and seizes them, end quote. Well, the next spiritual gift Paul lists is the gift of teaching. He said in verse 7, he who teaches in teaching, uh, the word teaches is the Greek word didaskon, and it refers to the act of teaching, uh, didaskalia. The Christian who has been given this gift, men or women, but uh, the Christian who has been given this gift has the ability to interpret and present the truth of God's word in a way that is both understandable and applicable to the lives of God's people. Now, understand me. You don't have to be a theologian, understand. I mean, God gives the gift of teaching to some that are, you know, very simple, uh, Sunday school teachers or others. Okay, I'm not saying they're simple per se, but I'm, they're not theologians is the point I'm making, okay? You know, we think of, you know, people that are theologians, they have been gifted with this gift of teaching. Um, not necessarily. Uh, I've seen some theologians that are very brilliant uh, people, but when it comes to their teaching of the word, they don't connect very well. Um, but, you know, there they are in, in universities and things. But uh, here, this gift primarily is given to those who have been called by God to the office of teachers. And Paul mentions these offices in, in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 11 to 12. I'll just read it to you. Uh, Paul said, He himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave some in the body of Christ to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Two different categories. Uh, all pastors are teachers, not all teachers are pastors. Okay, we'll talk about that more in a second. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry... For the edifying of the body of Christ. So all of these offices, and that's what they are, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, all of these offices are teaching offices. And therefore, no doubt that if God's called you to a, an office in the church where teaching is the heart and soul of it, well, he's going to give you the gift of teaching, obviously. That goes with the territory. 
These gifts are given by the Holy Spirit to facilitate whatever ministry he's called us to in the body. So obviously if it's a teaching ministry, he'd have to give you the gift of teaching. But besides all of these, the gift of teaching could apply to a teacher in a Bible college, a seminary, Christian college, Sunday school, although not everybody in those ministries is necessarily called to be a teacher. Uh, I've seen people who, are, who were teaching, but honestly, I didn't really feel they had the gift of teaching. Therefore, I didn't think they were called to be teachers, okay? That's my opinion. But, but this gift would apply to anyone who is in a teaching ministry, uh, any place where God's truth is taught. Uh, look, just very simply, teaching God's Word is really feeding God's children on um, the healthy spiritual food that enables them to grow and to bear fruit for His glory, which means, guys, uh, this is an absolutely essential ministry. Teaching is the lifeblood of the church. It's absolutely essential to the health and life of the body of Christ. Uh, it was the first thing listed in Acts 2.42 that characterized the simple practice or pattern uh, for the life of the early church. You remember you, we read... We read they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So that was the first thing the church was given over to was studying the word of God. The apostles were getting direct revelation from God, which became our New Testament, basically. Um, but they were receiving direct revelation, New Testament truth, which they were then disseminating to the churches. And uh, the apostles moved around more of an itinerant ministry, the prophets in those days stood more local. They were kind of the local forerunners of the pastors until men could be raised up as elders and then pastors. But uh, the church, the first thing listed, they, they continued steadfastly in the word of God, the apostles' doctrine. It was the last thing that Jesus commanded his church to do when he gave us the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, he said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Listen teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Well, we know the Apostle Paul was a faithful preacher and teacher of God's word, declaring to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 27, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God. I, I kept nothing back. I declared everything God gave me to teach you. Later, he laid down this as a command for all future pastors. When he charged Timothy, a young pastor, he said in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Timothy, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, all the things you've heard me teach in Timothy over the years that you've known me, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He's talking about raising up new elders, new pastors. And you have to make sure that they know their primary responsibility is to feed the flock of God on the healthy teaching that comes alone from God's Word. There's a lot of teaching that's creeped into the church, psychology and all kinds of other things that are not healthy. They're making the church sick. All because a lot of pastors don't feel the Word of God is sufficient. They don't hold it in high esteem. So therefore, they don't give it, they may give it lip service, but really they don't think it's going to transform lives. Psychology is going to do that or something else. That's where we are today. One pastor had this to say on the subject, and I quote, he said, regular systematic teaching of the word of God is the primary function of the pastor teacher. As an elder, he is required to teach, 1 Timothy 3, 2, 
and to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict titus 1 9 so you know has to know the word so he can exhort people in the body with regard to the we'll talk about that more in a second also to uh, rebuke those to come against those who are teaching false doctrine he's to be someone who constantly stands for truth he's to know the truth he's to teach the truth so much so that when error enters into the body, uh, the pastor, first and foremost, will confront. I've confronted people who have come into the body one day after church. I knew these two guys. They had started coming recently, and I knew they had some strange ideas about things. But I was just waiting to see what God was going to do, if he was going to use the church to help them to come over to the truth or what. But um, after the service, I saw them talking to a little group of people. And my blood just boiled immediately. I went right up to them. I said, what are you guys talking I said, come here. I pulled them away from the people. I said, what are you talking about? And they were talking about this weird little doctrine that they were embracing. I said, you are not allowed to teach that doctrine in this church. Who are you, the Pope? No, I'm the shepherd. And the shepherd watches after the sheep. I said, if you come back next week, I'm going to call the police. Well, what if we come back anyway? I'll call the police. They'll escort you out. I said, you guys don't want to, you don't want to learn, you want to teach. You're not teaching that garbage here. You have to take a firm stance sometimes, right? Because I'm to say pastors are not, only, not the only ones the Lord, Lord calls and empowers to teach. But if a pastor's ministry is to be judged, among other things, on the soundness of his teaching, then it seems reasonable to assume that, in some measure, he should have the gift of teaching, end quote. Of course, of course. Look, I can always tell a person who has been given the gift of teaching. You can too. You can always tell when somebody's been gifted by God as a teacher. Now, sometimes they're very young in the faith, and they haven't had a chance to develop, which all teachers do. I remember a few years ago, um, my son Phil, my daughter Angela, and I went with another group from Calvary Blue Island to El Salvador to do some ministry. And every morning before we would get out there to do whatever we were going to do for the day, Pastor Steve, who was really the one who led this uh, outreach, he assigned one of the young people to do a, a short little five-minute devotional. So every day I, we, we heard from a different young person, okay? These were not really old in the Lord Christians, but you know what? I could tell those who had the gift of teaching and those who didn't. Because those that had the gift of teaching, you could, there was an, an anointing. No, it wasn't, it wasn't a deep theological presentation. That's Okay. But what they said was truth, and it connected, and you felt, wow, the Spirit was connecting you with that truth. And you just, you just know it, okay? Well, in uh, verse 8 of Romans 12, Paul mentions another gift, the gift of exhortation. The uh, Greek word is, uh, is parakaleo, uh, which combines two Greek words, the word para, which means with or alongside, and the verb kaleo, which means to call. The idea behind the word parakaleo is to call alongside for the purpose of helping. For the purpose of helping. It's closely related to another Greek word, the noun parakletas, which is the word we, that means advocate, comforter, or helper. Now, in John 14 and other places in John's gospel, Jesus likened himself to a helper, the parakletas, and the Holy Spirit. Remember he said, I'm going away soon. You can't follow me. I won't leave you alone like or this is in the upper room the night before the crucifixion. 
I won't leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to go to the Father. I'm going to have him send back to you another helper, right? Well, another helper implies Jesus was the first helper. And then the Spirit of God would be another helper who would take up the ministry after Jesus would ascend back to the Father. Exhortation is something that every Christian should engage in from time to time on behalf of other believers in Christ. The idea behind exhorting one another is basically urging, encouraging, warning, uh, advising, or even pleading with them to either continue in the course they're going, meaning it's good and godly, or to turn from maybe sin or rebellion or uh, some bad habit that is corrupting their walk, destroying their witness, and hindering their usefulness for God. So we can exhort somebody to just keep going the way you're going for the Lord, right? Or if they've strayed, exhort them to get back right with God. Now, Paul and Barnabas were exercising the ministry of exhortation in Acts 14, if you want to turn there. Acts 14, we'll pick it up in verse 21. So they returned to Lystra, now this is Paul and Barnabas uh, and, their, and their team, uh, returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, listen, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So Paul's not correcting them, he's encouraging them. And that could be, exhortation could be any, either one of those. Uh, this ministry uh, is reflected in Paul's charge to Timothy to always preach and teach God's word. He said in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, in season and out of season, using it, the teaching of the word, to convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching. So exhortation could be any one of those. But listen, the spiritual gift of exhortation, we're all called to exhort each other, okay? But the spiritual gift of exhortation differs from the general exhortation that we as Christians should engage in. And, and really, it, it's been my experience, it often goes hand-in-hand hand with the gift of teaching. Look, I have been present many times, usually at conferences or pastors gatherings uh, when the word of god is being taught and the gift of exhortation was also an operation how did i know that well i knew it because i wanted to jump out of my chair and run off and do whatever i was being exhorted to do i remember one time somebody was teaching on prayer and this pastor was a gifted teacher but the gift of exhortation was working and he's talking about prayer and the power of prayer, whatever else he was talking about. After a while, I'm not even sure I was hearing him anymore. My heart was like, I got to go pray. I want to pray. I want to run out there and go find a place, quiet place and just pray. That, that's exhortation. Again, look, we've all been exhorted to, to exhort uh, other Christians. And I, I have been exhorted by many Christians over the years. Some of it was constructive, some corrective, but all of it was general exhortation that I took to heart. But again, guys, that is different from being present when the gift of exhortation is being exercised, which, listen, is powerful and unmistakable in its ability to move you into a certain course of action. I'll share with you one story. I've got many examples of this, but I thought this was kind of interesting. Years ago, when I was in Catholic school, I was like in second grade, so I was like seven, and... Um, 
a few of us had cheated on some test. And I forgot the details. But anyways, this little nun comes in. Now, she wasn't our teacher. She came in from somewhere else in the school. And she must have been saved. Because this little gal had the gift of exhortation. And she's exhorting us to fess up. Now, guys, you need to you know, tell the truth. Now, who, you know, if she didn't have to get through exhortation, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, like I'm going to confess what I did, you know. No way. But as she's exhorting us to confess what we have done, if we've, if we've lied or cheated on this test, we need to come clean. I'm like, there's, there's a, a struggle going on inside of me. Uh, part of me was saying, I got I to gotta confess, I got to confess. Another part of me was like, what are you, crazy? Don't say a word. Finally, I just, she said, okay, raise your hands. Whoever cheated on this, I had to raise my hand. I had to do it. The exhortation was just the gift of exhortation on this little gal was incredible. All right, the next gift that Paul lists in Romans 12 is the gift of giving. And, of course, this gift simply implies, uh, is simply what its name implies. The usual Greek verb for giving is didomi, didomi. But the word used here is an intensified form of that Greek word. It's metadidomi, metadidomi, which carries the additional strength and force of sharing and imparting that which uh, belongs to me, sharing it with others. Uh, when we think of this gift, we often think of a person who generously and consistently gives money. Usually we're thinking of money uh, with regard to this gift. Uh, those who give money to the work of God. And certainly that, that, that's true, part of it. But the word really indicates a person who gives of themselves. Who gives. They might be poor, but they have a giving heart. And they do whatever they can do. You can be poor and have the gift of giving. Now, there's a lot of folks that uh, God blesses with wealth because he's given them this gift. We'll talk about those uh, in a moment. But um, the word really means those who give of themselves, of their time, talent, service, or money to help others and build the kingdom of God here on the earth. It's interesting that when asked by the multitudes what they should do to bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, John the Baptist replied, Luke 3, 8 and 11, Let the man who has two tunics give. Metadidoi, that's the plural of metadidomy. Let the man who has two tunics give to him who has none, and let him who has food do likewise. Uh, Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 4.28 said that all Christians, listen, all Christians should labor, performing with their own hands what is good, in order that they, he or she, may have something to share, metadidoi, with him who is in need. So I bring those up to, to, to say that we are all commanded in Scripture, all Christians are commanded in Scripture to be giving people. However, when God gives the gift of giving to a person, uh, well, it's all they can think about. All they can think about is using whatever money or talents God has given them to help others and to build his kingdom on the earth. Years ago, I wrote a biography on the life of D.L. Moody and how uh, he was involved with many ministries uh, some he started, some he just got involved with that helped people practically and spiritually. One of Moody's biggest supporters was a man by the name of John Farwell. Farwell. Farwell was a devout Christian 
who was a wealthy American merchant and philanthropist who partnered with men like Marshall Field. So he was a big player in that day. He heavily supported the work of the Young Men's Christians Association, or the YMCA, the United States Christian Commission during the American Civil War. And as I just said, he was a big financial supporter of the evangelical works of Dwight Moody. As I have said in previous studies, when the new YMCA building in Chicago uh, was completed and was going to be dedicated, Farwell uh, either completely financed or heavily financed the building uh, of this building, uh, this new YMCA center. And um, when it was going to be dedicated, the people wanted to call it Moody Hall because Moody was very instrumental in the YMCA. In fact, he really because of the anointing on his life, I mean, it really grew and prospered. That's where they needed a new building, okay? But Moody said, no, name it Farwell Hall, after the man that God has given the gift of giving, which he has done so generously, call it Farwell Hall. Now, that's interesting because in Romans 12, Paul went on to admonish those with this gift to give with what? Liberality. Liberality which translates the Greek word hoplites, uh, which uh, has the root meaning of singleness and came to connote simplicity as it's translated in the King James. Simplicity, single-mindedness, open-heartedness, and then generosity. And, and basically, guys, it carries the idea of sincere, heartfelt giving that is, listen, untainted by selfish ambition or ulterior motive. In other words, giving with no strings attached. That's why the King James says, you know, in giving with simplicity. So with some, that doesn't make sense. It does if you understand what's being said. When you give with simplicity, you don't complicate things with strings and conditions. And, well, I'll give the money, but here's what I want in return kind of thing. You just give simply to honor the Lord and to help those in need or whatever it might be. So we would say giving with liberality, or in other words, giving with no strings attached, and so on. One pastor said this, and I quote, he said, the Christian who gives with liberality gives of himself, not for himself. He does not give for thanks or recognition, but for the sake of the one who receives his help and for the glory of the Lord. Those who give with liberality are the opposite of those who sound the trumpet before themselves, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they might be honored by Men, Matthew 6, verse 2. Now, we see in the New Testament, guys, that many in Macedonia, that would be modern Greece, uh, were given the gift of giving by the Holy Spirit, and they gave with great liberality. Of these, Paul wrote, and I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians first, 2 Corinthians 8, because Paul wrote to these folks, starting with verse 2. You know, there are some churches that are extremely generous, and I really... I'm just, I'm not saying this just to say it. I really believe this church is one of those churches. And that's why I believe God has given us. We're not wealthy, but we have enough to help. Because God knows we want to help those that we can. All right? We read in 2 Corinthians 8, starting with verse 2. Paul said, They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, those that gave. But they are also filled with abundant joy. You can't give without having joy, you know, if you're a Christian, which is overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. Now, he's talking about this uh, gift 
that Paul was asking churches to chip in for, this gift to take back to the saints in Judea, Jerusalem primarily, that were going through this great famine. And the church was really suffering there uh, physically. And so Paul wanted the Gentile churches to chip in to, so that he could bring an offering from the Gentile churches as a way of saying thank you to the Jewish Christians because, you know, the Jews were the ones God used to bring Messiah and keep the scriptures all those centuries uh, and so on. And so he thought it would be a great way to bring unity in the body of Christ between Jew and Gentile Christians. And so this is what he's, he said, I went to you guys, and, and although you were poor, wow, you, you, you begged me to take money. You didn't really even, you gave more than I could even imagine you, you would have given, right? You did it of your own free will. Uh, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Verse 4, for I can testify that you gave not only what you could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us. See, the gift of giving implies not just what you can do financially, but giving of yourself. And that's what Paul's acknowledging. He said, you know, uh, not only did you beg us to take money, he said the first thing you gave was yourselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. Now, if you couple this with something he goes on to say in chapter 9, understand how important this is. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, we read, Remember this. Now, the context is still about giving to the Lord. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And Paul is basically saying this. You don't have to give your money to the work of God or to help others. You can keep it. You can hoard it. But understand an illustration from farming. If the farmer takes a handful of seeds and throws it over five acres of land, he's going to only reap a small crop. But if he takes a lot of seed and sows it over his land, he'll receive an abundant crop. And, God, and Paul is saying God has basically allowed us to have money in this life. We can only use it in this life. So you have to decide if you're going to spend it all on yourself or you're going to spread it around for the work of the kingdom because when you get to heaven, depending on how much you gave of your money and yourself will determine how great your reward is in heaven. But know this, if you're going to give, you've got to do it with a cheerful heart. The Greek is hilarious heart. You've got to fall down, not holy laughter, you've got to fall down laughing that you have an opportunity to take what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Wow. That I can use unrighteous mammon to sow into the earth the work of God and wow, I will reap an incredible gift in heaven. Now guys, when someone who is called and gifted to be a giver stops giving liberally, listen to me, they will often see their resources dry up. This happens when a person stops realizing that God is blessing their life, their business, whatever, blessing them financially, because he's called them. He's gifted them as a giver. And so as they give to the work of God, because God keeps pouring into them, 
as they keep giving, God keeps giving back. But there are some who come to a point where they maybe they're not as close with the Lord as they once were, and they kind of start drifting a little bit. And as they drift, their heart for giving is lessened. They begin to think that it's my hard work and my ingenuity that has prospered my life. And so they begin to spend their money on themselves instead of spreading it around to help others as the Spirit directs. And let me just say this. I don't say this to uh, manipulate anyone into giving, okay? Uh, boy, the pastor said, if I don't keep giving, I'm going to dry up financially. I better, better give to the church. Look, I never teach to manipulate. And if anyone thinks I teach about giving to get you to give to us, don't give to us. Give, give it to some other minister, okay? Honestly. I'm just laying down a biblical principle that you cannot outgive God. And whatever you give to the Lord, and sometimes it's giving to the Lord by giving to someone else in need, God will, well, as somebody said, God will not be our debtor. So whatever we give to the Lord, he always gives back and multiplied, okay? And if you have the gift of giving, well, all the more you can give to help others and build the kingdom, right? But it does bring up something important because there are people, and Paul said, I'm not one of these, 2 Corinthians uh, 2 verse 17 we are not like so many who peddle the word of god in other words they use the word of god to line their own pockets now of course the church is full of these uh, connivers you have these false teachers who understand that there are people that have been given this gift of giving and uh, these false teachers and preachers they target people these kind of folks Good-natured folks, generous hearts, is a way to make merchandise off of them, these false teachers. I just read the other day, I'm sure you did too, that prosperity teacher in Charlotte, and I, I didn't even know the guy was still around, Jesse DePlantis, is trying to get his followers to help him raise $54 million to buy, listen, his fourth jet. What does he need another jet for? Because he wants one big enough to go anywhere in the world without stopping. Because he said that saves on fuel. $54 million can buy a lot of fuel. Besides, and I did a little research, the plane he wants got a range of 9,400 miles. To, to get halfway around the world, is got a journey of about 12,500 miles. So I think Jesse's going to need a few more bucks to buy a little bigger plane to be able to get anywhere on the earth without stopping. It was said of D.L. Moody that millions of dollars, and folks, this is at a time when a million dollars was really a substantial amount of money. It was said of D.L. Moody that millions of dollars passed through his hands that had been donated to his ministry. I read a book one time by his close friend and associate, R.A. Torrey. And Torrey said that the reason that God kept allowing millions of dollars to pass through Moody's hands was because, listen, the money never stuck to his fingers. He never spent it on himself, but he always made sure that all of it went to the legitimate. Not this phony baloney, I need another jet. Uh, wow. He's not the only one, prosperity teacher, that has got their own private jet. Okay? Someday they're going to climb on board and go all the way to hell, but okay. You know, I'll tell you, I just, well, let me just say this, okay? Moody was a godly man. 
I think Moody himself had the gift of giving, and he exercised it with liberality. There are good, many good men and women in the body of Christ that would never misuse God's money, would never spend it lavishly on themselves, claiming it was for the ministry, quote-unquote. In Romans 12, verse 8, Paul says that, he not, talks next about the gift of leadership. He says, he who leads should lead with diligence. Uh, leads is from the Greek word prostemi, and it has as its basic meaning to stand before. And the idea is you're standing before people, or in other words, you're in leadership. Okay. Uh, in the New Testament, interesting, this word is never used of government rulers, but of the leadership in the family and in the church. And I've got the references up here. You can come up and look them up. In Acts 27, verse 11, and Revelation 18, verse 17, the word is used of a pilot or helmsman, the person who steers or leads a ship. The gift of leading is no doubt given to pastors and deacons in the local church. Again, uh, if God has called a person to lead in any capacity, he's going to give them the gift of leadership. Some have this gift in a more intensified form than others. I admit that. But... Um, this gift is no doubt given to pastors and deacons in the local church who are charged by God with leading the flock of God with care and diligence. However, the gift is not limited to those offices, uh, and it is given by the Holy Spirit to leaders of families, as we just said, but also to those who direct uh, such activities in the local church, such as Sunday school, women's ministry, youth group, nursery, or even a building program. The Greek word diligence, spude, also carries with it the idea of haste, interesting, haste. So if you're a leader, lead with diligence. The Greek word carries with it the idea of haste, speaking of a Christian who leads with eagerness, uh, doing things properly and in a timely manner, which implies a measure of enthusiasm. There's nothing worse than a leader who hates leading, who hates being in ministry. Uh, I don't know if it's an oxymoron. I don't know how you can really be called by God to be a leader. Well, let me just say this, okay? And again, it was Moody. I'm quoting Moody all night tonight. But it was Moody who said, it's okay to be tired in the work. It's not okay to be tired of the work. Now, think about this. If you're tired in the work, you need to take a little Sabbath, a little sabbatical. Rest a little. Even Jesus did this with his guys all the time. Took them away from the rigors of ministry so they can, you know, get recharged, okay? If you're tired in the work, that's no problem. Get some rest. If you're tired of the work, that's a problem. You need revival. Don't rest because that is not what you want. If you are tired of the work, it means you need personal revival. If you pull away from ministry to rest, you may never come back. I've seen this before. People say, I just need a little, need a little break, Pastor. I've never seen them again. You have to determine which category you fit in. But here, those who are really called and operating in the Spirit do things prompt. They're not lazy. That's the, that's the contrast to those who are, you know, do these leadership with, with, with haste. Uh, you know, they're the eagerness, and they do things promptly in a timely manner. They're enthusiastic as they serve the Lord, in contrast to those who lead with procrastination and laziness. A lot of those folks aren't even called to be leaders in the church, but they are, unfortunately. One pastor adds an interesting footnote. It is significant that Paul makes no mention of leaders in his first letter to Corinth. Lack of functioning leadership would help explain its serious, the church in Corinth, 
its serious moral and spiritual problems, which certainly would have been exacerbated by that deficiency. Free-for-all democracy amounts to anarchy and is disastrous in any society, including the church. The absence of leaders results in everyone doing whatever seems right in their own eyes, which is exactly what Israel did during the period of the judges, which was a disaster. I bring this up because there are those folks who believe that you shouldn't have any formal leaders in the church. We're all filled with the Holy Spirit. So you got the Plymouth Brethren who don't believe in pastors or elders. So their services are you come together, and whoever has a little prophecy or a little poem or a little spiritual thing or whatever, we all kind of just take turns sharing. Well, that was the problem in Corinth. You don't read of any functioning leadership, and everybody was jumping in, doing whatever they thought they should do and sharing this and whatever. It was chaotic. It was not of the Lord. That's why God has ordained leaders. If you don't have, and there are those that advocate no leaders politically, anarchists, uh, you know, we don't need leaders. We should all just, we want total liberty. Well, that's anarchy. No society can survive anarchy. That's why God has given us leaders. Now, they're not infallible, and they often make mistakes. And if they're bad leaders, they will stand before them and give an account someday. Romans 12 Paul said very clearly, God has established government, human government, because we need leaders, otherwise there is craziness. Now, and finally, as we come to the last gift in the list in Romans 12, it's the gift of mercy. The Greek word elao carries the joint idea of actively demonstrating sympathy for someone else and of having the necessary resources to successfully comfort and strengthen that person. Those resources, guys, don't necessarily have to be financial in nature. They could simply refer to a person who is able to, I don't know, speak words of comfort uh, into the heart of somebody who's going through a difficult time. Yeah, money's a part of it if you have the money, but uh, one writer put it this way, said, and I quote, this is a Christian who has been divinely gifted with a special sensitivity to suffering and sorrow with the ability to notice misery and distress that may go unnoticed by others, and with the desire and means to help alleviate such afflictions. This gift involves much more than sympathetic feeling. It is feeling put into action. The Christian with this gift always finds a way to express his feelings of concern and practical help. He shows his mercy by what he says to and what he does for the one in need, end quote. Now, guys, this is a gift that can be exercised in many different ways, in many different places, and to many different kinds of people. For example, this gift is used quite often in hospital visitation, jail, ministry, or in service to the homeless, the poor, the handicapped, the suffering, the sorrowful. I think of our ministry to Cornerstone, which is a homeless shelter in the city. Our church is very active in that ministry. Every year, a couple of times a year, we have a whole group that goes down, and uh, we bring the food or cook the food and pass it out to the homeless folks who come in off the streets. And it's a real gift of mercy uh, in operation. and really helps these people. Somebody said one time in a program I was watching about this very issue, they said, you don't realize how a hot meal can raise the spirit of somebody who is homeless, downtrodden. Just that little act of kindness, you can't believe 
how that will can really bolster a person's spirit. So these are, you think, well, that's a small thing. Is it really helping anybody? Yeah, it really is. Again, guys, all Christians are commanded to be merciful, even with a warning for those who fail to be merciful to others. I won't have you turn to these. I'll just read them. We talk about, well, we all should be merciful. No, we all must be merciful. Matthew 5, 7, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. James 2, 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James 3.17, For the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Again, guys, the gift of mercy, we're all called to be merciful, obviously. But the gift of mercy seems to be a concentration of mercy from the Holy Spirit. It's a gift, a supernatural empowering. He gives you this mercy for others. It just seems to be a concentration of mercy upon a person's life, a mercy that kind of just saturates and characterizes their whole life. Those who have this gift should exercise it, Paul says, with what? Cheerfulness. Now, why do you think Paul makes a point to say that? Listen to me, because the gift of mercy can be a very draining gift that can tax your energy and rob you of your joy if, listen, if you don't stay close to the Lord and constantly draw from his energy, his strength, and his love for those that you're ministering to. And the reason for that is this, that those who need mercy are usually those that are hurting the most, suffering the most those who require the most time and therefore are the most draining. And if you're not careful, they will take your time away from the Lord. Time you need to recharge your spiritual batteries. This is, and, and you know, there's an old saying that if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And the devil knows those who have been given these gifts because he's seen each of the gifts in operation. He knows what the gifts are. He studies our life like a general looking for a weakness a vulnerability he can capitalize on. He knows the people who have been given the gift of mercy. He just sees their heart. So what does he do? He tries to send all these draining people their way to burn them out. To burn them out. You have to be careful of this. These folks, they, they don't mean it. I'm not saying they purposely try to drain you. But they're just so needy, they're so hurting, that when they find a, a, a loving person, they latch onto you. Now, you have to be careful. You have to set boundaries. You can't just let them control your life. You've got to pray about that because they will take you away from the Lord, time you need to be in his presence, to have your spiritual batteries recharged, right? If you let that happen, let me just say this to you, what used to be a joy, what used to be done with joy, will become a joyless burden that you will come to resent. This little story, true story, illustrates my point. It goes like this, and I quote, A Christian lady once said, When my mother became old and needed someone to care for her, my husband and I invited her to come and live with us. I did all I could to make her comfortable. I cooked for her, did her washing, took her out in the car, and generally cared for all her needs. But while I was going through the motions outwardly, I was unhappy inside. Subconsciously, I resented the interruption of our usual schedule. 
Sometimes my mother would say to me, you never smile anymore. Why don't you ever smile? You see, I was showing mercy, but I wasn't doing it with cheerfulness, end quote. And that's again, guys, why the Lord Jesus Christ constantly took his men away from ministry to get alone with him so they could have their spiritual batteries recharged. We need to spend time alone with the Lord. You can't just run from one ministry to the next. I mean, you know, I mean, I understand that, you know, especially younger believers, they want to do so much for the Lord. You have to be careful, though. Your greatest ministry is not for the Lord, it's to the Lord. Acts 13, as they were fasting and ministering to the Lord, the Lord said, separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work I have called them to do. It's in those times where you are ministering to the Lord, loving him, praising him, so on, that he will speak to you and me and direct us into areas of ministry that will bear fruit. If not, we're running around looking for whatever we can do. Some of it might be good. Some of it might not be. Some of it God may be leading. Often, though, he's not. It's good ministry, maybe just not leading us to do it at that time. So we're going like crazy, serving the Lord to the point of exhaustion. Well, you can read Revelation 2, how the Lord said to the church of Ephesus, you guys have served me to the point of exhaustion, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. You're so busy serving me, you don't have any time for me. That's a problem. That's a problem. You need to have a balance. It's good to be a, a Mary, but you have to also be a Martha. Uh, excuse me. It's good to be a, a Martha, but you have to really be a Mary. If you study that passage carefully, it wasn't that Mary was unwilling to serve. That wasn't the point. It was you just lazy, just sitting down all the time. No. The point was she served, but that was not her true joy. She did it out of joy. But her real passion was to finish the work so she can come and sit at the Lord's feet again. That's the balance. And what did Jesus say? He said to, to Martha, 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 you're just so uh, stressed out. So many things. He said, Mary has chosen the better part. He didn't say, Martha, you've chosen the bad part. Service is not bad, it's good. But fellowship with the Lord is better. Because out of that comes everything, right? All right, I'll end this study tonight with the words of one of our Calvary pastors who had this to say about spiritual gifts. Okay, I'll read this and we'll end. And I think this was important. That's why I wanted to read it to you. Uh, he said, and I quote, I believe the Lord is looking for an army of sharpshooters who will zero in on their target and say, this is where I function. As they make the development and exercise of their spiritual gift, their priority and passion. How can you know which gift is yours? I believe the answer is amazingly simple. If you suddenly became the pastor of blank Christian fellowship, what changes would you make? If you would grab the microphone and call the fellowship to activism, if you would try to get folks fired up to share the gospel, if you have a burden to speak forth God's word to a hurting society, chances are yours is the gift of prophecy. We'll study that next week. If, on the other hand, you would divide the fellowship into small groups in order that members of the body might serve one another and meet one another's spiritual needs, yours is most likely the gift of ministry. If given the opportunity, you would lead the fellowship in a study of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, of homiletics and hermeneutics, of eschatology and ecclesiology, yours is probably the gift of teaching. If your primary concern would be funding worthy causes for needy people, 
If your energy would be spent organizing bake sales and car washes, yours is the gift of giving. If your heart would go out to hurting people, if your passion lies in hospice ministry, jail evangelism, or crisis hotlines, yours is the gift of mercy. If, however, the first thing you would do would be to head for the church office and straighten things out in order that the fellowship would operate more smoothly and effectively, yours is the gift of leadership. What would you change? What would you do if you were in charge? Your answer will give you a good clue as to what your spiritual gift is. The problem is, this is important, listen to this. The problem is I have a tendency to analyze others in the light of my gift, wondering why they're not functioning as I do. Why aren't they as burdened for what I'm burdened for? Are they really walking with the Lord? I got a burden for the lost. They don't really have a burden. I'm willing to go out into the streets and tell people about Jesus. They're not willing to do Are they even saved? How can they be a Christian and not have that heart? He says, look, this is the problem with many Christians in many churches. We tend to analyze others in light of my gift, wondering why they're not functioning as I do. Great is the day, and mature will be the church family who will simply say, she's different, or he's different. And that's as it should be, because they're functioning the way God made them. That's the point Paul is making here. Listen, find your gift, develop it, and let others function in theirs, end quote. Good words to live by. When we talk about spiritual gifts, we are all different. Paul makes it very clear earlier uh, in, excuse me, later in 1 Corinthians 12. We are many members, one body. And it's very important that we don't try to force people into our giftedness or our heart for whatever. I'm so thankful we have a diverse group of people who have a heart for different areas of ministry, as it should be. If we were all in those, there'd be a problem. All a mouth, okay. So Paul said the physical body is a testimony to the strength there is in unity and diversity matures the christian who says i'm so thankful that god has called you and gifted you in this area of ministry that's not my passion but i want to see the people you minister i'm going to see them saved i want to see them blessed thank god you're doing that that's your area i'll pray for you i'll even support the work my ministry my heart's over here but praise God, we're all different. But together, we become a healthy body, and we are functioning uh, in strength, unity, and the work of God is being accomplished. So next week, God willing, we will shift over to 1 Corinthians 14 and buckle your seatbelts. It gets, well, I, I think it gets exciting. Uh, it gets a little turbulent uh, because there are a lot of folks that don't think those gifts are still around today. And we'll talk about them uh, next week. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your spirit and, and how you've given us, Lord, uh, many gifts to be used in ministry. And Lord, thank you that there is such diversity in the body of Christ. We all don't, all don't have the same gifts, but we, we serve the same Lord. And the goal is the same, to see people saved, to see people grow, to see them honor and glorify you. So give us grace, Lord, to do all we can do in the area of ministry you've 
put us in and to pray for those who are in different areas of ministry. But Lord, give us grace. We pray that you would fill this church with every gift of your Holy Spirit. And give us grace, Lord, to use them exactly the way you want us to, that the whole body might grow and be effective. So we thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.